Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling, joined today by my co-host, Doug Stewart. And our guest today is Zach Rofer. Zach is the author of a book, a free ebook titled Busting Myths About the State. He was previously on the Tom Woods show, and his book is now available on the Ludwig von Mises Institute website. So he's here to tell us about the book and what are some common myths about the state that have permeated public consciousness, but which are totally bogus. So, Zach, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. So, give us a little bit of a a background on how you came to libertarianism and why you chose to write this book in particular. Like, what what do you think was deficient in maybe the existing libertarian literature that that prompted you to write uh, your own book? Sure. So, I guess in terms of background, uh, I was... Uh, for want of a better term, uh, constitutional conservative. Uh, but I was really you know, brought up, uh, educated uh, to believe in in the the worth of the state. And it was really just a question of whether my guy should be in charge or your guy. Um, but in uh, the way I got here was probably a little uh, untraditional. Most people tend to come to libertarianism either through reading Ayn Rand or uh, through the Ron Paul campaigns. I actually came here through economics more than anything else uh, during the uh, first, uh, when Obama was first running for president, I thought many of the things that he and his campaign were saying seemed uh, absurd in terms of economics, but I actually couldn't articulate why. And again, it came back to, well, my guy is better than your guy or else just shout louder. Um, and so I, I felt unequipped. So I started on a, on a journey to try to re-educate myself in economics and ended up reading a range of things, from, actually from Atlas Shrugged, you know, The Road to Serfdom, uh, Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics, Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, and actually read Mises' Human Action. And during this process of, I guess, re-educating myself, I came across the Mises Institute and which is you know, primarily an economics-oriented site uh, with respect to Austrian economics or free market economics. But once you start reading stuff at the Mises Institute and once you start uh, hearing some of the personalities there talk, as you, you guys will know, it's very closely linked to Rothbardian and libertarianism. I didn't know anything about libertarianism, but as I dug deeper into the resources there, I came across uh, you know, Rothbard, Hopper, uh, Walter Block, Stefan Kinsella, and Tom Woods. And, and as I read more and more about the political philosophy of libertarianism, it really resonated with me. Uh, and, you know, I really came to appreciate it, its justness, its cogency, and its consistency. I mean, I've been a contrarian all my life, I guess, but um, this, was, uh, this is another order of contrarianism. And 
so that that really once I read For a New Lib Liberty, uh, you know Rothbard's um, the first of the two Liberty books, uh, the other being Ethics of Liberty. I uh, I really it really clicked that this was um, the the political philosophy that I guess intellectually I'd been searching for. So why did I write the book? It began, I guess, as a project to summarize and consolidate everything I'd learned. I mean, I'd read over 100 books. I'd listened to thousands of hours of podcasts, read hundreds of articles, and I started to put it down on paper, maybe to organize it for my own mind. Um, but then I, it occurred to me, well, why not um, use it to try to save others the time and effort I'd invested? Uh, it was, so I was thinking of it like a, a college survey course, covering a lot of ground, just enough to whet one's appetite. Um, you know, I felt like uh, I had been, to use one of Tom Wood's favourite phrases, the subject of educational malpractice. And my thought was, well, if I can write something to uh, get others uh, up to where I am faster, why not? So I really targeted at two sets of people. Um, one are uh, those who are sort of beginning or intermediate libertarians who want more ammunition to bolster their arguments. Uh, I know Ron Paul has often said that everyone should contribute to the liberty movement in their own way. Uh, given my professional life, I can't be a public advocate like Tom Woods or a professor like Walter Block, uh, leaving aside even the fact that intellectually uh, I'm, I'm uh, not quite there. But uh, I thought if I could provide a user-friendly tool to help those who want to advocate, that that could be my way of, of, of working for the movement. Uh, and the other target is those who simply have an open mind and are genuinely interested in learning about uh, our philosophy, I tried to cover most of the main issues, uh, and I felt like after reading this, you know, not everyone will agree with everything I wrote, but hopefully it'll whet people's appetite. So one of the things I appreciate about the way you you put this book together and the way you word things is it it, it is very sort of to the point. I mean, it's there's a lot of material that people can go to, to to dive in deeper on specific issues here, but most people don't, you know, have the time to do that. And what's great about your book is that you you give sort of quick, concise, and cogent answers to a lot of issues that libertarians face or think about or are confronted with uh, in the context of discussing libertarianism. So let's just walk through some different parts of your book here and some of the different arguments you raise and uh, and have you sort of explain to our listeners the way you approach these things. So in the opening, you know, you, you talk about the voter and you describe that the, the, the public perception or the perception of the state towards the voter, the voter is someone who is supposedly simultaneously in need of being governed and yet uh, magically is competent and able to elect a government to govern themselves. So how does that work? Can you talk about that myth and what's wrong with that idea? Well, it's an interesting dichotomy, I guess, that it's almost as if people want to be ruled. And I guess you have different perspectives, whether you're the ruler or the, or the ruled. So the, I think you know, those who are the rulers uh, in, 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 in this, at the state they'll pretty much do and say whatever is required to gain legitimacy. And so if, if they're able to tell people that, look, you know, every couple of years you get to choose uh, the people who are going to represent you and who are going to, you know, gently guide society in the way you think is best, 
and some people believe that, then they've got them. And, and for others, they may simply tell them that, you know, we'll impose your will on the, the rest of the society that, that doesn't share your views. If, if you get enough of you together, you know, that probably resonates with them. So I think from the ruler's perspective, it's sort of anything goes. But it's curious from the voter's perspective, uh, you know, I, I think people uh, have been educated to believe that they are having an impact, that their choices are being reflected by their so-called representatives. Uh, but I've come to the conclusion that people aren't either not in sufficiently intellectually curious or curious or aren't interested in spending enough time to really understand what it means uh, to, in terms of having the state making decisions on your behalf. And, and I also think um, people are, I don't want to say afraid, but you know, the, 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 one of the biggest issues when you talk about a stateless society is, well, who will do this? How will this get done? And I think that's a lack of imagination, perhaps a bit of fear of uncertainty. They look around, they see the state doing all these things, so they assume that's the way it has to be. But I think that's one of the interesting parts about libertarianism, that if you stop and think about what's going on, who's making decisions, how they're being made, why they're economically untenable and, and morally illegitimate, it's very easy to um, come around to our way of thinking. But if you don't stop and think about it, if there's nothing to prompt you, if, if you've got fear of, of what's regarded as anarchy, um, you know, chaos more, more than anarchy, I guess, then I, I think people are looking for an easy solution. And if they can just go to the voting booth and pull a lever or push a button and feel like, um, that, that that's going to bring order to chaos, then I think people would do that. But as, as you noted, as I noted in the book, it's kind of odd that um, you know, the people will, 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 will t the, the rulers will tell you that you know you need us to rule you. Uh, and 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 one argument is the part of society you know just can't make decisions for themselves. But then that part of the society gets to vote. It's it's a conflict not many people confront. I think on the subject of. Economics, because you, you mentioned you came to this from you came to libertarianism mainly from from economics. One of the comments you make is that the state or statists are are pretty much all Keynesian. Uh, in in what way do you think that that is the case? I mean, because we can think of you know, for example, maybe some people from the Republican uh, Republican politics from the Reagan administration who. I wouldn't necessarily say they're Keynesians, but they, they are statists, uh, but from a different, certainly not Austrians. They're from a different school of economics. In what way do you think uh, th that there's sort of a common denominator of Keynesianism amongst, amongst statists? I, I think the main tenet of that is a belief in macroeconomics in the sense that the economy is a machine and you need someone pulling the levers, turning the knobs, uh, to make the machine run. And, yeah, that is really the province of uh, Keynesian economics. And even if it's, for instance, the Chicago School who is more interested in making the state more efficient, um, and so I regard the Chicago School as pretty close to, to you know, pure you know, Keynesianism. In both cases, it's really a belief that, that there is, a, there is a, such a field as macroeconomics and the economy is distinct from the individual's uh, you compose it. And of course, 
you know, the, the, the difference in, in Austrian economics is that all individual, all, all, you know, the, the economy is just the aggregate of many um, billions of individual transactions and exchanges, uh, and that um, humans uh, act differently, they have subjective values, they change their preferences all the time. This is not a machine, it's not a chessboard where you can move the pieces around. So that, that I think, is really the essence of what I would call statist economics, the, the belief that, that um, someone needs to manage this this beast known as the economy. Zach, one of the um, one of the things that I think is a critical point of libertarianism is the the insights on what is the nature of the state, and uh, I think that's a, a major portion of your book. What is it that is unique to libertarian analysis of the state? Well, I, I think the the you know the the key feature is how does the state act. Um, uh, I, I think. You know what libertarians break it down and say, "Look, everything the state does is based on uh, coercion. Uh, uh, you know, legislation is passed telling you what you can do with your body, or um, what you must do with your body, what you must do with your private property, such as your income, your house, your your business, etc. And uh, there are fines if you don't comply, and if you." If you don't pay the fines, then uh, someone could show up, you know, government goons can show up with guns to uh, drag you away. And if you resist in self-defense of your property, uh, you could be shot or worst case killed. If they do drag you away and they take you before one of their tribunals, uh, you could end up in a, in a brutal cage known as prison. So you know, that is what backs up all of the state's edicts, whether it's taxation or regulation. Uh, and I think, you know, that's, that's the central insight that, um, you know, Murray Rothbard certainly was quite blunt about in his, uh, in his book, For a New Liberty. Uh, and, and I think that's what is the main point of distinction, because I think if you said to a statist, you know, I just don't believe in initiating force against peaceful people, they would nod their head and say, I agree. And if you said to them, you know, I think that every every man should be subject to the same behavioural code, that no man's entitled to live by a different code, they would shake their head and say, I agree, or nod their head and say, I would agree. Uh, but then if, but, but what we do is we take that and we, and we apply it consistently uh, to every human being and every action. And, and what that does is it, it quickly makes you realise that since uh, every act by the state in terms of taxation or regulation is ultimately a coercive act initiating force against peaceful people that it delegitimizes the entire apparatus that is the state. One of the things that Bastia wrote about in the law was that individuals could come together and uh, prevent other individuals from doing things to harm them. In other words, they could form communities that would protect themselves against, uh, you know, an intruder or somebody who would do them harm. And so to some extent, I think some people might make the argument that, well, the government or the state or, or at whatever level, we could think federal, we could think local, is just a collective form of us sort of protecting ourselves against harm from one another. And therefore, there has to be some sort of, you know, violence or coercion involved because you know we have to say oh here's where we want the line to be drawn you know we can pick a very obvious line like we don't want you to murder us 
And so everybody's up, everybody lives by that same law of, well, okay, well, we're not going to murder, else you'll suffer the consequences. And we would kind of say, well, that's, of course, a, a legitimate uh, uh, way to, uh, a legitimate illegal thing. Um, but some people might say, and, and then most libertarians would also say, but, well, we didn't consent to all those laws, or the, the idea of consent is that uh, I just go and vote. That doesn't make any sense. The, the laws were set up before I was born, and there, it gets into a lot of topics, and, and I think you deal with this in your book. So talk a little bit about consent and what does it mean, you know, how do we, how do we as groups apply legal forms uh, without, without violence? So I would say, as regards what you, you noted at the beginning, yes, um, libertarians certainly believe that you can organize rules uh, on a voluntary basis. So we're in favor of governance, just not governments. Uh, and we, we, you know, I think people commonly believe that uh, a stateless society would, as I mentioned earlier, would be chaos. There'd be, there'd be no rules. But, of course, we simply believe the rules should be uh, voluntarily agreed to. And the other point I would point out uh, before addressing the consent point explicitly is, uh, you know, I, I think um, libertarians, well, not all libertarians are pacifists. There are there are some who are pacifists, but libertarians believe in a strong right to self-defense. So it's not as if um, by getting rid of the state, we would be saying people can can come and, and, and uh, uh, attack us or, you know, we'd be defenseless. Um, you know, libertarians would organize their own form of defense, whether it's self-defense or uh, protection agencies, fences, you know, guard dogs. I mean, whatever you want, it's just simply would be uh, the, the services, that the defence and protective services that, that would be provided would be uh, agreed to voluntarily as opposed to being imposed upon you. So, so a libertarian society wouldn't be without order or, or rules. It would just be uh, those uh, be governed by voluntary institutions. But, but the question of consent, I mean, it's an interesting one that, you know, people I'd say, well, you know, you, you, of course you're consenting, and, and I don't know what that means when I say to them, well, no, I'm not consenting. I don't know how, uh, if I expressly say I'm not consenting, they can say, well, implicitly you are. And so people try to bring up, okay, well, the Constitution, I mean, well, which is kind of, you know, I think, uh, you know, Lysander Spooner was pretty good on this, saying that, well, okay, I didn't consent to the Constitution. I was, I, I never voted for it. And, and also, you know, if you have voted for it, uh, you, you know, presumably you voted for what was written down and what, what the state does is so far removed from what's written down that um, it it's kind of makes a mockery of that. Then people say, well, if you're voting, you know, you're consenting. And, of course, as you noted, I mean, voting gets you into a host of issues because it whether you vote for um, politician A or against politician A or you don't vote, if politician A wins, then politician A rules you. So it's hard to see why that's an act of, of consent. Um, and, and also people say, well, you know, you're represented by a politician, but when, when, when I hire an attorney uh, or, or another service provider, you know, we, we understand you know, that that person represents me, there are terms of the contract and there's, you know, customary way of acting and, and that person's not supposed to act in conflict with my interests, but how can voting for someone who represents hundreds of thousands of people or who have different interests be an act of consent to that politician's actions when... By definition, he's representing many different conflicting interests. Um, and then, you know, people say, well, you're, if you're living here, then you've consented. Um, and, and again, um, so I would ask, as, as sort of you did, well, when did I consent? When I was born? Um, or what age did I consent? What evidence is my consent for every major decision in our lives? We sign a contract uh, where the terms are laid out if you buy a house or a car. But 
you know, we're, we're supposed to believe that for the most important thing in the world, who can rule us, whether we like it or not, that it's just unspecified and just based on the fact we didn't move away. Um, and, and, you know, there are other issues about saying that if you don't move away, you're deemed to consent. I mean, you know, where can you go? Consent is only realistic if, if you have alternatives and if every everywhere is under some f form of a rule, then, then that's not freely given consent. Um, just because someone claims legitimacy of rule in a territory doesn't mean they have it. I mean, if I stood up in my village and saying, okay, I'm in charge and anyone who doesn't leave is deemed to consent, I mean, who would agree that 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 everyone that those who stay are agreeing to my rule? And I guess the last you know the last point on this I would say is why should you have to move if if you don't agree to be ruled by coercion? And you know why is it why is it that you have to leave? Why doesn't the coercive entity have to stop coercing you? It's kind of an odd situation about okay who's in the wrong and who's in the right. Um, and then the, uh, the, the, the other point is about, okay, well, if you're using state services, then you must be deemed to consent. Well, first of all, you have no, no choice in the matter. I mean, the state makes you pay for these services whether you want them or not. And in many cases, it outlaws anyone uh, providing these services in competition. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, so I, I think there are a lot of arguments people throw up and all they're, all they're aimed at doing is to find some way to say you're implicitly consenting. And as I said at the beginning, if I explicitly tell you I'm not consenting, all your arguments are for naught. Uh, and this has been, you know, this has been, if you think about it, for, for, that, you know, for, for many, many, you know, hundreds of years in history, there have been justifications for coercive rule. I mean, at one point it was just based on uh, that it was thought that the state was, you know, the leaders were divine. Uh, and then at some point uh, when that was done away with, it was uh, argued that, well, there's sort of a social contract. Um, and, and, you know, people are always trying to come up with reasons to say, well, you implicitly consent. But I think that that makes a mockery of the whole notion of consent. Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. Voting is one of these things that even in intra-libertarian polemics, there's a lot of disagreement on, uh, even amongst specifically anarcho-capitalists often disagree on, on voting. What is your take? Is voting a, a coercive act? Should libertarians vote as if under duress? How do we think about that? Yeah, so I... I I know this is an interesting point of debate among libertarians. I, first of all, I think there's a there's a practical view that the chance of your vote getting you the outcome you want is infinitesimal. If you think about it, you have to look at the probability that your vote decides an election uh, multiplied by the probability that um, your your candidate keeps his or her promises. And of course, they're all bundles, so it's not clear which of those promises you voted for, multiplied by the probability that that candidate can get that through the legislative process, multiplied by the probability that the state actually enforces those rules because the state doesn't enforce everything that's that's passed. So the, the chance of you actually getting what you want is, is, is so small, practically, it's not even worth your time. And this is in, distinct, in distinction to going to the store it's worth your time investigating a product you buy because you you get you know you you get the product you want. You don't have to share it with anybody, and uh, you know so it, it, that's why people invest more time and and are more rational about 
buying products in the market than they are about voting. But that's the practical aspect. Then the question is, well, well, what, 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 what's, what's the moral, moral take on this? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that uh, I don't think if, if a libertarian votes, um, he, he or she is necessarily um, contributing to, to the violence of the state. Um, I guess it depends on the type of election. So let me let me let me say this: if it's a referendum where there's a binding yes/no decision, like should we increase local taxes or you know should we do this, should we do that? Uh, if you wanted to ignore the probability of your vote um, deciding that, you could you could make the argument that in fact, if you vote no, you have the opportunity to reduce coercion. But, but the vast majority of elections are these amorphous voting for some candidate who has a bundle of promises that he or she may not keep, may not be able to enforce. And it's so amorphous, I, I would say that it's, it, again, it doesn't make a lot of sense to vote, uh, but it's also pretty much disconnected. I mean, if your vote can't influence an election, then how can you say your vote is evil? Um, so, you know, I, I think there are a lot of different, different ways to look at it. I, I would say the last point on this is, I, I think libertarians can have a much greater impact not wasting their time with the electoral process. Uh, you know, I think if you think about how you can contribute to the cause, instead of investing time figuring out which candidate is better, getting involved in campaigns, um, going to the voting booth, et cetera, you know, maybe th think about doing other things like like you guys are doing, spreading the word, um, uh, or, or like writing books, making speeches, getting onto campus, you know, uh, trying to convince people maybe just one mind at a time. But there are better ways to spend your time as a libertarian, I think, than, than, than voting. One of the other things you talk about in your book is democracy itself. And we've, we've covered that on this show uh, from a variety of perspectives, this show and, and the LCI website over, over a period of years. Uh, and you do cite Hans Hermann Hoppe, and we have plugged Democracy, the God that Failed, uh, both on, on this program and, and in various LCI material over the years. So can you tell us about the, the myths surrounding democracy? Because even, even Rothbard in his time uh, thought that democracy was maybe an improvement over monarchies, even though it wasn't the stateless order that he wanted, he, he saw it as kind of being at least a little bit better. But Hoppe comes along and challenges that whole notion. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, so as you know, I mean, I think the best way to think about uh, Hoppe's view is the sort of the landlord versus the tenant, that who is more likely to take care of the property the, the landlord, the, the the person who owns the property and has a long-term interest in preserving and enhancing its value, or the tenant who is there temporarily and whose interest is to really do whatever you know, he wants and get as much out of as he can while he's there. Uh, and that's that's sort of Hopper's argument that you know the old-style bloodline monarchies uh, saw the country as theirs and took a long-term view. Uh, and and that the the population knew because they weren't members of the family they would never get to rule so they they sort of there was a clear delineation um, and then he he you know, distinguishes that from democracy where uh, you know 
the, the folks in charge are there temporarily and so their motivation is in the short run to get as much out of it for themselves as they can uh, and that um, because everyone believes they too can be part of the, of the governing elite uh, or, or, or that they believe that uh, they're just governing themselves, then they're much more willing to uh, allow for this uh, short-term thinking and just get as much out of it as you can now. So, you know, I think it's an interesting thesis. Uh, it, it certainly, to me, makes sense conceptually. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, that the, the state has obviously grown massively with the advent of democracies. So I know correlation is not causation, um, but you know, as as uh, states have moved to this democratic mindset where we're just governing ourselves and everyone can take a shot at you know, being a pig at the trough, uh, you know, you've seen, you've seen the state grow enormously. And I think that's why Hop Hopper's theory uh, is plausible in explaining that. Um, but more importantly, I think people have, le leaving aside whether you know, democracy is actually you know, better or worse than monarchy. The, I think the illusion that people have about a democracy is that there's something good, fundamentally good, maybe even moral about it, um, that that everyone's involved and participates, uh, and that you know, democracy is is a is is a, is a, is a much more uh, is a much healthier state. But you know, there are there are plenty of democracies that uh, do very nasty things to their own people and do nasty things to other countries. Uh, and it, you know, democracy is just a process. It's not an outcome. It's just a process of, of choosing who the leaders are. It doesn't guarantee any particular outcome. So, you know, in a monarchy, you had you know, the, the decision as to who ruled was based on bloodline. In, in a... Uh, in a totalitarian state, that whoever rules is based on you know whoever gets the, the the military on their side and can seize and hold power, and in a democracy, who rules is based on you know the getting sub some small part of the population to vote and a majority votes for someone to be in there. So that's all the process of of coming up with a ruler. More importantly, is well, what does the ruler do once in office? And when you look at the growth of the state under democracy, you look at the the violence that's waged by the US and Britain and France and and others uh, around the world uh, and and in, and the way they you know suppress people at home I mean the US with the war on drugs and every time there's a there's a, a major war uh, you know the the state uh, in further encroaches on people's liberties at home I mean it's hard to argue that democracy is is good or moral, and and uh, I would argue it's hard to argue that it's it's an improvement on on what was there in the past. You know, a lot of people would say that democracy equalizes uh, things, so that it isn't just the aristocracy or those who uh, are connected to power are able to influence how things happen, and that democracy is supposed to be some sort of like either path to or manifestation of egalitarianism. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the concept of egalitarianism in with respect to you know economic equality. I think uh, you know we, we would all of we would affirm here uh, the Libertarian Christian Institute that you know all all people are equal before God. Uh, all people are equal in their value and should be treated with equal value by other people. But that doesn't necessarily equate to uh, you know 
equal economic value. Right. So I certainly believe that no man is naturally entitled to uh, rule over another. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't recognize anyone's right to rule over me except perhaps my wife. Um, and, and so I, I think there is an equality of, of entitlement, an entitlement to an equality of treatment uh, that, that comes from, from being a human being and, and interacting with other like humans. Um, but, but, you know, the, 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 val the, the, the income or the wealth that you generate, um, well, let's distinguish between the, the free market and the, a society with a state because inequality um, generated in one way, there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's something healthy about it. Inequality generated in a different way, I would argue there is a problem with. So on the free market, you know, the only way you can generate uh, income and wealth for yourself is by producing something that others value and exchanging it um, for what you value. So it's it's you know it's it's composed only of of voluntary interactions and uh, you know there's there's great uh, economic benefit in people specialising at what they're best at and instead of trying to produce everything for themselves and then produce what you're best at sell it for money take that money and buy things from others who have produced what you want and who they're best at and if and so the people that that accumulate a lot of wealth on the free market are those who have created a lot of value for, for everybody else because the only way they can obtain money is by producing something of value and, and, and selling it to those who are voluntarily willing to part with their money. So there is nothing uh, immoral, illegitimate or violent about that way of accumulating wealth. And, um, and obviously those uh, entrepreneurs who accumulate great wealth, what that means is that they're using resources in the most efficient way possible uh, because um, you know those who generate profits are able to purchase factors of production, uh, create valuable products that others want to buy, and, and sell them at more than the cost of acquiring those factors. That's what profits are. It means you've been efficient with the resources, and it's a good thing that those people get to generate profits and, and income because that means they're they're creating value over the value of the resources. Those entrepreneurs who are destructive of value will lose customers, lose business, go out of business, have to yield resources. So in some sense, the process of wealth generation on the free market is actually uh, um, you know, good for conservation of resources because it's people being most efficient with the use of resources to satisfy the most urgent needs of consumers. But you've got to contrast that with the generation of wealth through the agency of the state. Um, the problem with the state is because the state can forcibly take money from people through taxation and then give it to others through subsidies, or the state can uh, prohibit people from competing with its chosen supplier because it provides a monopoly license to that supplier. So there are people who make, uh, who generate wealth through the state's agency, either because they, you know, generally because they're the most effective lobbying interests and, and they get monopoly privileges or they receive subsidies uh, and so for those people who are acquiring wealth, because they're doing it through the agency of the state and the state uh, acts through coercion, I think there is a problem with, with those people generating wealth to the detriment of those who don't. So I think you need to distinguish between what's generally called the market entrepreneur and the political entrepreneur. 
and, and, you know, again, one is a healthy sign of using resources to satisfy consumer wants. Another one is just a, a sign of who's the best at, at coercing uh, or, or renting the state's coercive powers. And the last thing I would say is, you know, on, 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 when you bring in the state to try to equalise things, all you're doing is swapping inequality of, of, uh, of income for inequality of power and uh, so that you can't get rid of the inequality. It's just a question of what is the more legitimate way uh, for it to be, uh, to, for it to arise. Zach, as we kind of move to the close here, one of the things you talk about near the end of the book is the idea of, is, are libertarians just being utopian? And, you know, it's, it's funny, I was talking to a friend of mine just the other day who is sort of a former libertarian, which I, I find a funny concept, but sadly they, they do exist. There are former libertarians. But he's still somewhat libertarian. He's kind of bought into the economic nationalism over the last couple of years. But uh, he was basically making the argument that, uh, you know, the, the, the market can't resolve things like, like labor disputes and labor abuse and, and somebody in the state has to enforce workers' rights. And he's like, oh, Nick, you're just being utopian with your libertarianism. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. We have thousands of years of empirical data showing that the state is terrible and doesn't work. And that's, that's fact. That's data. And he's calling me a utopian. So are libertarians utopian? Can you bust that myth for us? Yeah, the way I think about what utopia is, it's, a, um, it's sort of an ideal place of sort of, I guess, unattainable perfection. Um, and if you think about what the status believes, um, yeah, the, the status believes that the individuals at the state uh, will only act selflessly uh, and for some idea of common good, which, uh, as I talk about in the book, is uh, a, a, a fallacious concept that there can't be a common good, um, and that, that they believe that those at the state are, are, in a sense, omniscient, able to discern what this common good is and, and selflessly manage the, uh, the flow of resources in society uh, and, and that um, the state which acts as a monopoly is the one monopoly that, that is acceptable. I mean, statists, I think, will tell you monopolies are bad because they raise prices, lower the service levels and uh, restrict innovation, but somehow this monopoly is, 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 is okay uh, and that the use of force in society um, is is a way to resolve conflict. So this is what the status believes. And I find when you restate it that way, it's it's almost incredulous to believe that we get called utopian because if you think what libertarians, libertarians accept all the human foibles for what they are. And yeah, our view is, look, um, the people at the state are still human beings. So they're subject to all the same foibles as those in the private sector. Uh, and so if, if you believe that humans are either evil or incompetent, why would you want to have them centrally directing society? Shouldn't you want evil and incompetence decentralised? Isn't that the way to have a better society? Uh, I mean, libertarians aren't saying that things will be perfect. It's just that if you centralise that evil or incompetence and, 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 the fact, and, and, and if you have people you know, claiming to know what everyone's individual preferences are and the best way to organise resources to attain that, uh, 
it, that's 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 that to me that is you know utopian thinking as opposed to uh, allowing uh, individuals to interact with each other and decentralizing the problems of of human imperfection. So we're not suggesting that the world will be perfect. We're suggesting the world will be better uh, if we uh, eliminate the use of uh, eliminate the right to use force uh, to initiate force and. Um, and if we, uh, you know, allow decentralized decision making, I mean, the the status they they compare, you know, what they see as the imperfection in the world with what they perceive to be the perfection, the perfectibility of the state. And I think to me that is the utopian thinking. All right. Well, Zach, thank you very much for joining us here today. That does it for this episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You can check out Zach's book, Busting Myths About the State. In the show notes page, we will link over to the PDF, so make sure you uh, download a copy. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.